Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, this is Ollie, telling you about another podcast I host, Unfiltered. It's an interview show. We've talked about sex work, addiction, and battering racists. And we're only a few episodes in. Some of the guests so far... One Direction's Niall Horan, GOAT footballer Viv Miedemar, and Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. Just search Unfiltered with Ollie Dugmore wherever you get your podcasts. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one. It's the Politics Show Pubcast. Love podcasts, hate nonsense. It's the Politics Show Pubcast, ladies and gentlemen. Woo! Yeah! Come on. Um, We interrupt our slightly regular programming uh, because Parliament is in recess. And to fill the gap, we've decided we're going to do a series of episodes where we talk to some of the big brains in Westminster. So that's going to be think tankers, policy wonks, and maybe a couple of spads as well. Um, So joining myself, the golden boy of politics, Joe Ed Campbell, and the Capital J journalist, Ava Santina, this week, we have Matt Lawrence who is the director and founder of the Commonwealth Think Tank. Matt, it's a pleasure to have you with us, and cheers. 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 Welcome. Thank you very much. Let's pass it down. You'll probably only be able to reach yeah. it. Yeah. I think it's bad luck if I do it with water. Oh, well. I pass it to you, so it's fine. It's all right to mix, it's all right to mix in the water every now and then. Mm. Mm. Delicious. Um, Ava, Ed, how are we? Doing well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, great. Tip top. This beer is slightly warm. I'm not sure how I feel about your intro, because basically what you suggested was... There aren't any big brains or big thinkers on the team, so we have to you think there were? subcontract. Yeah, what do you think I'm doing? Well, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that would no. clear that up. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I'm being self-denigrating. I think, I think you guys in Taking particular. Taking us with him. <laughs> I think, I think you guys in particular have ginormous brains, um, particularly when we discuss the House of Lords and <laughs> and, and, and Charlotte Owen. Uh, you guys are big brain geniuses and I'm a weird take merchant mm-hmm. that's that's my that's how I see it mm. me too actually great <laughs> and the audience <laughs> uh, and the audience yeah particularly and the audience um, I'm only here to fill the quota <laughs> 
Great. <laughs> um, Matt! <laughs> yeah, good, yeah. Um, here, no, yeah. you're filling the think tank quota. Yeah. Um, tell us about Commonwealth. Tell us about who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. So we uh, were founded, or I founded it in 2019, which now seems a long time ago in, in many ways. Our focus is on really economy-wide transformation, uh, but through the prison ownership. So through that sort of basic argument that the fundamental thing that structures how our economy operates and who it operates for is how it's owned. And so what property relations, what capitalist property relations in particular do to how we live, to how we organise our society, and to sort of the basic dynamic of the upward extraction of wealth and power. And then sort of conversely, we kind of think about, well, how can you reimagine that? How can you rearticulate how things are owned? How can you democratise ownership? How can you rethink things like, you know, how we organise data, the energy system, how we organise the ownership and governance of business to really sort of drive a much more democratic, equitable and sort of like anti-oppressive society. And what was it about 2019 that made you think that those political ideas might not have a home anywhere else? <laughs> well, it was actually, it was in the sort of spring of uh, 2019. Oh, okay, sure. You know, sort of in that first flush of romance. No, um, <laughs> um, but, you yeah, know, I mean, in some ways it has been, it's been a busy uh, four, four and a half years. Mm. Uh, and in some ways, I think that it's been interesting to watch the organization. So there's 11 of us now, including sort of a team member based over in the US. And it's been interesting to watch it evolve and sort of like, in some ways, the basic mission of ownership being at the center, the sort of gravitational force that kind of locks our economy in shape, being kind of reconfirmed through a series of crises, whether it's the differing treatment of renters versus homeowners, whether it's the centrality of intellectual property rights and who had access to the vaccine, whether it's kind of the distinction between you know, working people seeing their wages fall below, you know, sort of, uh, sort of inflation, and yet sort of shareholders and sort of corporate wealth exploding, kind of again and again, as we've evolved, we've seen that sort of golden thread of how our economy is owned and by who, being sort of re-stamped sort of on our politics and our economy as kind of so fundamental. And that's why we really think we've got to transform it as a precondition for doing anything else. We'll get into the details of all of that in a second, but I just wonder, you guys, if listening to like Matt's very top line there about um, that kind of politics, that kind of economics, whether you think there's particularly a political home for those ideas right now in British politics, or I don't know, just listening to that then, it felt <laughs> it felt interesting to me that certain, certain political characters aren't necessarily making the same argument. I don't want to break it to Matt but I don't think there is at the moment mate <laughs> um, yeah no it, it's, it's, it's striking it's poetic that he founded it in 2019 and kind of the energy around that politics seems to have been evaporated like the whole discussion has been <clears throat> just moved rightwards like economically yeah but I think, I think politics can move at sort of multiple multiple speeds simultaneously. So you can have the sort of like, you know, the, the, we're in recess, as you, you know, began with like, well, the Westminster politics, which moves at mm. quite a sort of like very rapid, you know, hour by hour, tweet by tweet, or X by X by X by X, depending <laughs> on that sort of, you know. I thought you were doing like a X as like X, Y, Z as an no, example, no, but no, you were actually only, calling it yeah. by its fucking name. Exactly, exactly. Got to be, you know, the lawyers said beforehand, <laughs> you can't. Call it X. <laughs> exactly. Call it by my X. Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, so, th so that, that's kind of one rhythm to politics. But then there's a kind of a deeper current. And I guess in some ways, the, the sort of judgment is how can you sort of ride the sort of surface level of, you know, Westminster politics, which does really matter. And that is kind of a narrative of our national life. But then there's a much deeper current, you know, the sort of, and this is mixing geological metaphors, but like tec tectonic forces uh, and currents that kind of go beneath. And that's about like 
the ownership of our you know, fundamental utilities, which have obviously kind of exploded into the news with the water crisis or with the energy crisis, or it's about economic power and who holds it and how that relates to how our economy is owned. And then again, that erupts into sort of certain moments. So it's kind of both tracing those underlying fault lines and being able to then intervene when it does erupt. And I think there's a wider, like, you know, there's a sort of politics in a sort of party political sense, but then there's a politics in terms of sort of how do you fashion a kind of common sense, a new common sense that I think in that sense, there very much is a still live sense that something's not fundamentally not working in this country, that fundamentally we need deeps of institutional and structural transformation. And I think, you know, the flip side of that is that people are very skeptical and cautious of politics as the route to deliver that. And so in some ways, how do you navigate those tensions is one of the kind of dilemmas and challenges. How are you navigating that? Well, uh, yes, I mean, uh, so, so, you know, to, to extend the metal with a boat and a submarine. Um, um, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I guess, I guess we, we sort of, I guess what our way of operating is to try and work from an outsider in. So we sort of do a lot of work thinking about, you know, how can our research, our policy development be useful for communities on the front line, whether it's sort of, you know, people working on sort of community asset ownership campaigns, you know, renters' unions, whether it's sort of, you know, the sort of labour movements sort of fighting for you know, living wages or public ownership of energy. But then we also try and sort of intervene strategically, so sort of, I guess more on the insider, so that, you know, whether that's kind of you know, national media, whether that's kind of political parties and their advisors and kind of sort of more targeted interventions. And sometimes they don't sink at all. And sometimes, in some ways, you almost don't want them to sink. You're trying to have a horizon of ambition which is not constrained by the day-to-day -day of Westminster. You're trying to sort of articulate that horizon that kind of can open up and then at some point, you know, be caught up, hopefully, by Westminster. Um, and then other times, it's about saying, right, well, here's an opportunity, and we're going to fight quite hard to try and, like, make, you know, gains. And those gains might be incremental, uh, and they might be subject to, you know, contest and pushback. But in some ways, that is just the nature of politics. Really and the nature, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, it's really interesting to me to hear you talking about the work of a think tank in that way, because I don't know about you guys, but I kind of, I think, I hear the word think tank, and I think that's just synonymous with kind of Westminster. Like I don't, mm. I don't think about it. I think about it in terms of like trying to seed ideas that extend beyond that. And maybe that's just my own ignorance. Um, but I don't, I've never thought about it in the terms you just expressed them there. So I mean, I think there, I think the thing with the think tank is there's no like set versions. So there are some which are very much like, you know, Institute for Government, very much like how does the Department of Education better deliver X outcomes. Or you might have you know, think tanks like IPPR, um, the major centre-left think tank, or say policy exchange on the centre-right, kind of saying like, okay, well, how do we really shape the manifestos of maybe the Labour and the sort of Conservative Party or the wider narrative uh, that they sit within? Um, or you might have some specialist think tanks um, that do, you know, autonomy, for example, does you know a lot of work on the future of work. So you have d different forms, and I think you know n neither is you know none of those forms are better or worse. Each Feel different functions, but certainly for Commonwealth, I think we've always tried to operate on that kind of, without sounding yeah, atrociously uh, big brain, which is a terrible phrase. Because I think <laughs> what the, did you put well, me? Think, when well, you, you use it. Big brain. I think the whole point is like, <laughs> I think if you're on the left, the whole point is collectively. <laughs> I thought he was being mean to me. Yeah, well, <laughs> but I mean, it's, but I think the whole if you're on the left, the whole point is there's no big brain, there's collective intelligence, and that's actually always much better than. No, don't worry, the, we don't go that far. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Collectivize the intelligence. <laughs> Imagine together what we can achieve. Um, but no, it's like this, that Gramscian sort of double movement of like the war of position and the sort of war of maneuver. So it's kind of like what can you do in the sort of day-to-day -day tactics, you know, press releases, responses, you know, going on, um, you know, 
podcasts and mm. such like and then that deeper sort of current of like how do you actually sort of try to sort of you know shape the sort of you know, intellectual formation of ideas you know sort of makes sort of coherent sort of arguments for bi bigger shifts than just like the day-to-day -day. and i think in some ways we always underestimate or we overestimate rather what we can achieve in like the next three months but we underestimate what we can achieve over to five to ten years if you sort of incrementally layer up changes and sort of drive those changes at a sort of you know incremental but rapid pace mm. i like the idea of Gram gramsci and analysis being applied to podcasts i'm not sure <laughs> i mean they, <laughs> clearly Damn, they're, they're right. definitely part of no 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 like, I, 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 I agree with you yeah. but just like He's in jail thinking about is the future of his legacy. Funny, <laughs> <laughs> Mussolini it. had to stop him. Podcasting. <laughs> stop, stop this away from him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he would have had a dynamite yeah. podcast. Don't really let him would. on the podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so if we if we were to talk then about those kind of five to ten year ideas mm. changing type movement uh, that you're going after, some of the stuff that you guys, the work that you guys do, focuses on energy security but energy ownership and corporate interest as well i mean would you talk a little bit about sort of the key areas that you're looking at to really instigate that kind of change yes yeah, so if we take those two so the energy system right now is doubly extractive it's extractive in that it sort of sucks money out of ordinary households and business and sort of transfers it through companies out to their shareholders and we've got shell and bp's results coming up this week and you know they'll reconfirm that extractive dynamic and it's obviously extractive in a sense that it extracts resources unsustainably from the earth at a sort of way that's you know, cooking that's the planet. That's good, that. It is good, yeah. It, who doesn't like to extract? <laughs> um, good. Are you proud of him? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, so, the way he was telling it. Yeah, no, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was, yeah, I was like, which one does she mean? <laughs> um, but so it's doubly extractive in that sort of both energy and sort of uh, economics sense. And you know, fundamental to that is sort of a combination of privatization. So for-profit companies that are driven by the profit imperative in how they organize their investment. So it's not about investing to deliver clean, secure, affordable energy. It's about investment that can maximize the cash they can extract and sort of distribute to their shareholders. And it's sort of privatized, but it's also marketized. So there's, there's a lack of planning. It's about sort of competition, sort of regulated competition, but competition is sort of in a slightly anarchic sense, rather than sort of planned towards a sort of secure energy future. So our alternative to like 10, 15 year horizon would be something more like an energy democracy, in which you recognize that energy is the fundamental basis of any society. You know, think of the transition from a coal-based coal society in the sort of 60s and 70s through to an oil and gas-based society under Thatcher and onwards. And that was, you know, that was fundamental to the sort of wider shifts society so the energetic basis of society is fundamental to the nature of a society so an extractive energy system tends to generate extractive economics an energy democracy by contrast says you know we would like you know abolish that extractivism that sits at the heart of you know sort of contemporary capitalism via democratic decommodified and decarbonized energy systems so by that it means sort of decarbonized so it's a sustainable energy system, you know, sort of reaping the sort of abundance of the wind and the waves and the sun. Democratic in terms of we would control it, we would plan out investment to meet social needs rather than just saying, right, okay, well, what Shell wants to do, what Ovo wants to do, what sort of Scottish power wants to do, you know, we'll just leave it to the market. So you say, democratically, this is something too important to be left. Uh, and so we're going to sort of shape it and we're going to make sure that energy is accessed as a sort of basic right. So that's the decommodified thing. You say, you know, secure, affordable energy shouldn't be something that is left to your ability to purchase on the market and your sort of, you know, 
the lack of power that you then have in that, and which we've seen so acutely during the energy crisis. You say that actually energy is so fundamental, we organize it as a sort of decommodified right. And you put that together, you have a sort of energy democracy. And then fundamental to that is an energy system based on sort of public ownership at multiple scales. So that might be sort of at a local level, like you know, community and sort of local authority partnerships. At a sort of larger scale, it might be public ownership of the grid. Um, Nationalise the fucking grid. There's going to be no transition without transmission. Uh, and you say so you really do need it, but you, exactly. Got, got a few Love of those. That. A double yeah. extractor, you know. Oh, these, are, these are powerful. Oh, yeah. These exactly. Are. Clean power. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, here we go. Oh, God. Here we go. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> God, actually, do stop me. Um, <laughs> please. <laughs> please. Um, Interesting, Matt. In, uh, I will stop you. Yeah, in all you. of, underlying all of that, stuff um the ideas you're talking about there for me it's quite clear that there's kind of the calculation you're making isn't just about the sort of the capitalist uh calculation which is money in money out you know what is the profit what is the financial gain from doing this rather than okay let's say we invest i think the two child cap right is a benefit cap is a good example of this where if you want to talk about just over a billion quid to spend that lifts a quarter of a million children out of poverty that for me, the social good from the spend mm. sort of totally blows away the financial cost of it and reorienting our thinking to think about something that isn't just as simple as sort of the financial side of it, but actually the social good, the consequences for our society is is fundamentally important. I feel like that's kind of what you're driving at there in yeah. talking about public, public ownership in the energy system. Yeah, I mean, we organise society around human flourishing, not around profit maximisation. And so, you know, with the sort of uh, two-child limit. I mean, I think there's just like an obvious um, and urgent moral and social imperative to to sort of abolish that. But then, you know, you could also take it from another angle, like society would be healthier and more dynamic mm. if people's lives were not blighted um, from things they cannot control with, you know, childhood poverty. Um, so just, it's a fundamentally like important thing to sort of still push on uh, and, and sort of fight towards. And I think even within the sort of straight jacket of, you know, fiscal politics in this country as it is, you know, there's always a way out of the fiscal box of saying, well, okay, yes, but sure, if you want everything to be costed, you can raise taxes on certain sort of sectors of society, certain sort of, you know, businesses, household types. So I think that's a great example of like, you know, it shouldn't just be about sort of a sort of dry, desiccated calculating machine. To go completely against the point I just made then, to mm. talk about the things that you uh, are advocating for, for example, public ownership, etc. Where does the bloody money come from? Mm. Uh, how does that work? I'm, I'm not saying that it's yeah. something that I'm particularly like fussed about, but obviously it's a criticism that other people will make. Yeah. That if you want to nationalise the grid, if you want to nationalise those energy companies, mm-hmm. how? So there's two sort of ways to think about, and in some ways, like it's more fisc- public ownership is fiscally conservative in the sense of spending money. So we just sort of break break it down. So let's let's take the grid. So I think there's a fundamental conceit in politics that's a public money costs private money is free so like if we get the grid to raise sort of, you know 150 billion so it's that's right, the estimate to build out a renewable ready grid that is going to sort of absorb and be able to distribute the amount of clean energy we need by sort of 2050 the climate change committee and sort of government estimates put that around 150 billion you know could be a bit less, could be a bit more. But it's a substantial sum of well, money. We can't do that because we're getting rid of inheritance tax. So. No, that's, that's it. No grid. Our inheritance is no grid. Right um, but then, so, you, so then the question, like, you know, if it's public, it's like, oh, well, that, you're going to invest £150 billion. Oh, wow. But then if it's like, oh, well, national grid, which is, of course, not a national sort of entity at all, it's a publicly listed 
uh, company that's an Anglo-American company, it's kind of like, oh, well, that's a free lunch. But of course, ultimately, we have to pay for it one way or the other. We either pay for it through bills or through sort of taxation or a mix of those two. And in the public route, essentially what you're saying is, we as a society, we need to build a clean energy grid by 2050. It costs about 150 billion. We are going to either borrow to invest or pay that through sort of general taxation or sort of bills. But the key thing is, if you're the state, you can borrow at a much lower cost than if you're a private company. You know, you're just more credit worthy if you're the treasury rather than just like some PLC that kind of vibrates in the market. So there's that. And you also then don't have to pay dividends. So National Grid over the last sort of five years or so paid around sort of 10 billion pounds worth of dividends. Now, if that was in public ownership, that just goes straight back into, you know, into building out the grid. So you sort of remove the dividends and the distribution shareholders, and you have that lower cost of borrowing. You put those things together, the basic cost of capital is actually much lower in public ownership. So, and when you sort of, if you say like, we've got to spend, we've got to invest 150 billion, that lower cost of capital in the sort of public sector versus the private sector for big infrastructure projects is significant. And that cost gap doesn't just disappear if it's in private hands. It means we will face higher bills as a result. You know, we'll face higher charges, higher bills, higher sort of surcharges. Uh, so in some ways, it's actually more fiscally sort of like, you know, sort of it saves more money for the public as a whole um, if it's done by the public. And of course, if the public does it, at the end of this, it has the grid in public hands. And we can then sort of say, OK, we want this to generate income each year for the Treasury, which can be distributed to abolish things like the two child limit. Or we can say we're just going to run it cost neutral. So we have that flexibility if it's in public hands. Whereas if this asset is built out via you know, private owners, it will be used for one thing only, which is to maximize profits. The second thing which you know, will, will people will point to say, well, OK, but to nationalize it itself will cost money. But of course, you're buying an asset that will generate income. Now, you might want to generate sort of less income because you're not paying um, dividends. But you will, you know, you, it nets out because you're sort of taking on debt but you're actually sort of getting an asset that will generate income. So in terms of accounting sort of tricks, I mean, I know that's not how politics, in terms of accounting how it works, this is not how politics works, but like in some ways, the nationalization is not the problem per se. The question is, in public hands, can you run it better and more sort of fiscally sort of soundly, which then takes you back to the first sort of things I was talking about, lower cost of capital, no need to pay dividends, you can purely focus on what you need. And just to give one you know, final example, um, Last the last week or so, and this is not the grid per se, but it's very relevant. The last week or so, a whole number of uh, offshore wind developers have basically cancelled pretty major offshore wind projects in the UK, or put put you know hit the pause button. Um, so Orsted, which is a big sort of developer, and a number of others, you know, to the tune of the, this would be like a big part of our future plan to get sort of um, sort of net zero sort of energy uh, by 2035 on the government's target. And the reason was they were saying, well, inflation um, plus high cost of borrowing means we can no longer do that uh, because it's not profitable anymore. It's not as profitable as we were seeking, sort of based on our projections of expected returns before sort of the inflationary sort of surge. Which on the one hand, I said, well, oh, well, okay, fine. But then we're not going to be able to clean energy. So the underlying problem of sort of fossilization of you know, volatile, expensive fossil fuels driving inflation and sort of high cost of business, high cost for households, holding back the economy is not actually addressed. And whereas if it was in the public sector, we could say, well, m maybe it does cost a bit more, but we need to do this as a society. Like, we need to do this. And so we're not going to be constrained by, oh, actually, returns at 
with the you know higher costs rather than 8.9 so we're just going to hit pause we would say actually it's urgently necessary to do this we can afford to do this and the benefits will more than pay for itself over time so we just get on with doing it and so we just have more autonomy more flexibility more sort of fiscal control in a way than sort of leaving infrastructure development in particular to sort of private very financialized hands so it's not just about social good or morality it's also a potential way to bring down inflation yeah, so certainly like action on the energy system, and I'd argue and Commonwealth would argue that sort of the public sector having a big role in that is the most direct, most effective, most affordable way to do so. Action on the energy system is a fundamentally important way to get, you know, get inflation under control. I think given the scale of environmental shocks that are already happening and going to cascade and sort of multiply, I think... We on about mate over forty degrees yeah. in Greece. Oh yeah, sounds exactly. fucking great to me. I don't know if that's sexy anymore. I think that the <laughs> argument about like you will feel this in your pay packet. This mm. will be cheaper for you. That is something you could actually get on board with because yeah. it's quite hard for some of the tabloids to put a front page, which is you are going to have more disposable income mm. if we do this. Yeah. That's quite. An- I think there's the media opposition to it, but I also think as well you talk about um, you know the particularly. Um, Labour's agenda right in relation to green energy and some of the stuff in it, it it is economically populist I think that's the right way to categorise it right it is you know not only are you going to have more cash but we're actually going to we are going to go after those bastards with billions of pounds of profit that are paying out these copious amounts of dividends that are making hay while it's pissing it down outside and you're stuck indoors you know I think there are aspects of this talking about the policy ideas around this that actually are like yeah, populist that are quite punchy and have mass appeal in a way that I don't know. Previous conversations, I think, around energy and pro- maybe this is sort of predates the energy shocks that we have had, and that's why it's sort of become that more flashy issue. Whereas, pre- yeah, previously, I don't know whether you could describe <laughs> energy pop- policy as like potentially populist. No, but I think I mean it uh, speaks and well, both your points really about like you need that you need a material basis for a coalition. You feel to say like you guys will have more purchasing power then you'll have more money in your pockets you know you'll be you'll feel less insecure you'll be able to do more things you'll be able to go out more sort of like there's go no to... guarantee i will feel less insecure well, exactly <laughs> yeah. different kind of insecure. different type exactly we can't be yeah. all insecure you can have your therapist on but, next week don't worry yeah, exactly. <laughs> nationalize my personal insecurities yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. someone else should feel like this too <laughs> yeah exactly all of you all of you um ed what do you reckon are we are we buying it or do we prefer greece at 45 degrees and um wildfires across Europe. Yeah, I don't know. I think Ava's point about making it clear this will affect you materially and like improve your actual lifestyle is unfortunately it's quite like a damning indictment of human empathy. Remember during COP twenty six or one of the cops when that man who's who's a minister in one of the, the small island nations in the, yeah. in the Pacific, he gave a speech standing in the sea that already risen mm-hmm. and like oh, yeah. he was like my island is disappearing. Everyone was like. Pfft. That's a shame. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think, I think you, people, the, the, the limits of human empathy are such until, like, until you can actually spend less money day to day. And also, I think you run into trouble as well because you've hardwired people to believe that you need companies like Shell and BP in order for the country to keep flourishing. Like, we, you, like English people genuinely, this is based on nothing, <laughs> I think that they <laughs> believe that you need that kind of paymaster 
And if you were to nationalise and get rid of them, then the whole economy would fall flat. Well, particularly in the case of like BP, for example, like originally it's a colonial endeavour, right? Mm. The history of the company, it's, it's not necessarily just private enterprise, right? It was originally the uh, Anglo-Iranian oil company, right? It's, it, yeah. And then, unfortunately, because of you know, a small coup uh, in, re- in relation to Mosaday, they're like, oh, maybe we need to rebrand. Maybe we need to rebrand <laughs> the company. British Petroleum, fantastic. Um, it's not... It's not as- the Shah's oil. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying it's foreign oil? Is that what it is? Are you trying to... And as such, we should um, deport it back to yes. Rwanda. Yeah. Um, no. Back to Rwanda. Uh, yeah, sorry. No, we should... When it, when, it, when it tries to enter Britain, sorry, we should deport it to Rwanda, which is not where it came from. In well, the, then it in can reapply? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, yeah. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Shut the fridge. It's the Politics Show podcast. We were talking about energy security, Matt. Uh, the other thing, the other sort of side of things that really interests me in Commonwealth's work is the sort of asset management side of things, and particularly um, BlackRock. Your work into into it. So, could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, BlackRock is sort of I don't know how, how much the listeners will know. So, to speak, BlackRock is this in some ways the most powerful company that you, you'll likely never heard of. So it is an asset manager. So it doesn't necessarily like do things directly. It's not like BP or Shell or some of the companies we've been talking about that might that business might be generating oil or whatever it might be. BlackRock instead owns a vast portfolio of assets, mainly shares, but increasingly bonds, increasingly sort of real estate. So it will often be the biggest single shareholder in most publicly listed companies. So a lot of what we sort of do is sort of dig into you know sort of forensic corporate analysis like who actually who owns this company who profits from it how much are the shareholders getting and you also kind of ubiquitously find that asset managers but BlackRock in particular will be often the very biggest uh, shareholders. What they do is they sort of aggregate vast pools of money so of you know wealthy investors of pension funds of you know sort of you know, private individuals and so it's not there they, it's not like Larry Fink the sort of CEO owns these shares himself he owns on behalf of others. But in doing so, they are sort of this like vast company that have this strange mix of like structural power, but are also quite passive. So by why that I mean is they are really are they're universal. They sort of have you know, their fingers in in every pie. They've got more than ten fingers, uh, to put it mildly. Um, and toes two exactly toes two. <laughs> They've got te- twenty digits in the global economy, um, and. But they're quite passive at the same time. So the whole thing is like, you know, you, you used to have active uh, sort of asset managers. So you'd give your money to someone and they'd say like, well, well I'm going to invest in it. So I'd actively track the market and I'd kind of put money in various companies. Whereas BlackRock's is they kind of just like dole it out as sort of universal sort of portfolio. But then they don't sort of 
do much with it. They don't engage much with these companies. And that sort of has a whole series of implications around concentration of power and wealth, but also around how you manage things like climate risk when you have you know, some of the world's larger shareholders being fairly passive in terms of how they engage with the companies they own shares in. So are they actually going to engage and say, right, you need to pay your workers more, you need to you know, sort of shift your climate policies. Uh, so it's this like infrastructural power uh, and it shifts where power resides in the corporation because it because it sort of sits in every company it doesn't really like it can't threaten to exit it doesn't say like well you're not doing very well i'm going to exit it kind of owns shares in lots of places so it's, but it doesn't have voice it's you know it doesn't sort of act very loudly it doesn't sort of vote on its shares in a very active way so it's this kind of power by accumulation um but what it says matters in terms of so larry fink in some ways is you know, one of the key figures in global capitalism, his diagnosis, his his um, you know, his thinking essentially. He he writes this annual letter, which is kind of a, a must must read thing. But I think in some ways, the sort of the flip side of that is what they what they hold um, assets in, which is sort of corporations, which I think in some ways go back to you know much like uh, sort of BP's origins, the corporate form emerged as a sort of legal and political institution of colonial dispossession. So it was you know. Think of the sort of East India's company. So some of the first companies that were sort of incorporated were incorporated to kind of de-risk shareholders and investors in that company to enable it to go across the seas and plunder and extract and expropriate the wealth of other people in other places. And in some ways, like the corporate form, in some ways, still retains that same basic dynamic. It is a legal and political institution that enables the combining of labour and capital for the purpose of production. But currently that production is organized ultimately for the extraction and exploitation and expropriation of wealth upwards. But I think the key thing is we'd argue is that just as you can kind of reform you know, asset management so that there's much more of a collective voice. So for example, ordinary pension holders have much more of a say in how their pension wealth is allocated and how that is voted on, you know, how your pension wealth goes into shares and then how your share is voted on. So just as you can do things to sort of change asset management, our argument is that the sort of corporate form is like in some ways like the fundamental sort of unit in our economy. And it's often presented as, well, this is just like this kind of emerged, it's just like kind a of fell down from the sky, and that it's just kind of that's what it is. And that you know, the powers that it distributes within the company, the decision making within the company, the behaviors it then encodes, that's just how it is. Whereas actually it's obviously like deeply social, it's politically constituted, it's legally maintained, and therefore it's very malleable. It's subject to public action, we can reimagine the corporate form. And I think there's actually something quite, you know, despite its like origins, there's something you know, extraordinarily powerful about the corporation. Like, you know, think of the extraordinary creativity and wealth it does unlock, but it does so in ways that, you know, reinforce and reproduce inequality that are completely unsustainable in terms of the planet. So it's kind of like, can we reimagine fundamentally the corporation so that labor, which is, you know, the source of, you know, of wealth in the world, like, can that have a genuine strong voice at the table? Can we think of the corporation as almost a commons, an institution that is stewarded collectively to create, you know, genuinely inclusive wealth, rather than just like a vehicle for the upwards extraction of wealth? So it's, you know, it's very complex, and there are tools to do that around company law, around how you regulate the company, around how the company is owned. But I think fundamentally, if you don't get that vehicle, that engine of extraction, you know, sort of retooled to sort of be much more inclusive then you're always going to be sort of running up an escalator in terms of trying to build a more equal sort of sustainable society. So like fun, you know, thinking about that legal and political institution that is the company, the corporation, that really should be re-centered in our politics as a kind of site of contestation, a site of rethinking 
if we're going to actually make genuine progress. I need an example of this. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I, I guess, and I doubled, I double up on that as well. I double up on that as well and say, um, please give an example, but also how feasible is it when the op the company we're talking on the opposite side of this has trillions of dollars mm. of, 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 of money. And Wait, can I also put in one more question? Yeah, yeah, sorry, I don't ahead. actually also understand how, if, if they've got no power, if they're not influential on the board, then colour me stupid, but why, why is that a problem then? Why is that, how does that affect workers getting pay rises or where pen people's pensions go if they're not saying anything on the board? Yeah, so in terms of the corporate form, so like, you know, if you think about what, what's the fundamental like tension between like where society's income goes, like between labour and capital? So in some ways, like workers versus shareholders. Um, over the last sort of twenty years or so, average wages, uh, or sort of average shareholder payouts, have gone up six times as fast as average shareholders, and that's in part because of how not only but in part how we design okay the corporation. We say in law okay, it's, you've got to legally maximise shareholder wealth. So you've got to sort of organize production in the company, not to sort of pay good wages, not to meet social needs, not to create innovation, not to you know, meet you know, environmental standards, but to maximize wealth. And so there's this like hydraulic force which sort of forces companies, even when they want to be good, to sort of actually bend towards like extracting money out and distributing it to shareholders and distributing it in a pace that is far out of excess with what they invest in terms of like, you know, sort of in proportion, they sort of are much they're growing how much they distribute faster than they're growing wages. They're sort of investing, underinvesting. You know, Britain is you know, chronically underinvested in, and that's in part because the rules of the corporation say, look, your priority is to get money and distribute it, not get money, reinvest it, get money, raise wages. Right. Um, and so you can kind of think about like investment problems, inequality problems. You know, who has a voice within the company as like all about the rules of the company, like who who matters, who's got voice. Who's got a say, and that's all down to like the rules of the company in a way. And I think I guess the key thing is those things are all changeable. You know, the Companies Act is a piece of legislation which defines, you know, the, is the longest piece of legislation in, in British sort of legal history, and it sort of defines you know whose voice matters, who is a member of the company, what's the purpose of a company, like how who sit who should sit on a board, like when they sit on a board, what powers do they have? Can workers sit on a board? You know. You know, how do you set executive pay within a company? How do you audit a company? All these things are kind of defined by that. But because we've defined them, we can redefine them. You know, these are not set in stone. They're not fixed. They're kind of not you know, beyond the you know, power of politics and sort of social movements to kind of focus on and change. And then your question on BlackRock, I mean, partly it's just the sort of sheer gravitational force of like if you own, you know, if you control almost $10 trillion worth of assets under management, there's a kind of you know, it's a gravitational force that you, you matter because you, you still do vote, even if you're not... So you'll vote, but you won't kind of necessarily engage a lot before the vote. So that matters, uh, and you kind of set standards within the industry. And because you're passive, you're probably less likely to be like, you know what, well, I'm going to get be really engaged and support you. But you still you. do get involved at the end. Yeah, you still, still will vote, etc. Right, right, right. But far less than kind of your typical, like, active managers. But there is a sort of debate. There is a sort of live um, academic debate around how far... Does it matter? I think there's a recognition there's been a big shift in capitalism. So there's been a shift from sort of active to sort of passive management. There's been a shift from you know, fairly dispersed ownership to more, much more concentrated forms of corporate ownership. Um, and then you know, much of that under companies like BlackRock and Vanguard. 
but there's definitely a live debate now about what well, does that mean you know we need to do x or y you know what does that mean about this passive you know, ownership strategies is that good for the climate agenda is that bad so there's, there's actually a lot of debate around that but i think the main thing is like it is a massive concentration of wealth it is a massive therefore concentration of like voice even that voice is kind of often passive um it's not like an activist investor and therefore you know if we're thinking about the mechanics of contemporary capitalism i think the rise of blackrock and the blackrockification of corporate wealth is a phenomena that kind of even if the exact sort of nature and implications of it are still in some ways up for debate i think it's definitely something that we should be aware of because i think you know, as i said like the fact that there's this company which does control you know, 10 trillion dollars worth of uh, assets under management you know i would say it's probably far less known than you'd think an equivalent company in another sector with that type of sort of you know globe spanning range would have it's quite a good idea really when you think about it isn't it just have a shitload of money and put it everywhere yeah exactly <laughs> take over the world i mean 10 trillion as well that's, m- that's, that's not a real number. Yeah, I can't. I don't know if I'm I could struggling. write that down. Go on, try. No, I, don't, I don't know if I could. Should we give it a go? Are we 12 zeros? 12 zeros? <laughs> I think possibly more. Yeah, what is it, a billion billion? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, but regardless, that's wealthier than most countries. All countries? Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's in some ways it's sort of... I guess you've got to be careful to compare like stock and flows, yeah. like in some ways like GDP versus like the wealth of country, all that, all the type of sort of caveats. But yeah, it's a lot of money uh, they control. Um, and I think the, the key thing is, and this, this is a wider thing about sort of like the UK pension system. So a lot of the money, often people say, well, you know, and you'll, you'll hear it probably with the results, you know, uh, for the oil and gas companies. So a lot of the oil and gas company executives, when they were saying, oh, you can't do a windfall tax on us because our sort of uh, dividends are sort of payouts to shareholders funds pensions and therefore to apply a windfall tax to us you're essentially taxing sort of granny in Sunderland or granddad in like Birmingham or wherever it might be uh, and in some ways like when people say oh BlackRock oh, but it's just it's just pooling all our money so it's kind of just like it's just like an asset manager on behalf of us but of course that completely smooths out the sort of huge inequalities in wealth uh, ownership uh, and sort of pension ownership which in some ways is a little bit more equal than other forms of, of wealth um, but it's still huge um, so if you're saying okay well companies should be like you know voting within a company at AGMs or who gets to go and speak to executive directors should kind of be like big asset managers big shareholders big pension funds people say oh well that's our money but of course it's not it's like a hugely unequal distribution of wealth in the first place and therefore it sort of skews who has a say in companies and who benefits from the sort of shareholder dividends towards the wealthy and so actually like in some ways going back to that point you almost want to rearrange the you know the corporation so it's less you know it's more about who work you know the producers you know a sort of democracy of producers rather than a democracy of wealth which is a sort of paradox um and then within sort of the pension system it should be less about like okay well you know if you manage to save a ton of money during your working life which is obviously then skewed by all the inequalities we know in the labor market you get income security and retirement and if not, you're on your own. We should be thinking about what's like a public, uh, you know, a much more substantial public pension system that re- re- you know, provides sort of income security and retirement for everyone uh, based on sort of like general taxation rather than relying on financial markets as much as we do currently. What would you do with 10 trillion quid? 
I just don't believe that amount of money exists. Like, I, I believe I believe you, Matt, because yeah. <laughs> you're an expert. Yeah. <laughs> so I have to, but is that like, it's just utterly unfeasible. That's like, you. it sounds like you have made up that. It sounds like you're actually a bad faith actor and you're trying, <laughs> no. to, trying to talk to me. Do you want to know? Do you actually want to know? How, because what I, you do with it? Yeah. Yeah, of course I want do to. Do you actually do? Okay, yeah. because I have a group of friends and I who've all been, who've all decided what we're going to do when we win the, the lottery. Yeah. It, that's not, how much money do you think you win with the lottery? <laughs> $10 trillion? I think this will cover what start. we want to do. Yeah, go on then. So what we want to do is buy Peckham Town Football Club, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And then and you'll have some change left over. <laughs> yeah, and then we want to build the Elizabeth line out so that it reaches it. Okay. That's, and I that think that good. would be enough. Still a bit there. I, in my head, I was thinking, oh, you know that Blink-182 music video where they like get on the roof with the leaf blowers and they're like shooting cash like yeah. at people yeah. in the street. And then I was thinking, would a roof be able to hold $10 trillion? What does that look like in like... I, I can't physical, imagine, like, I can't imagine bills, this ever been... Or like $100 bills. In one place, do you know what I mean? We need to know how many zeros it was first. Well, I think the audience should send us cash and we'll see, <laughs> yeah. see we'll if we can see, see if we can build out ten trillion dollars. Yeah. yeah. If everyone sends us one dollar, we'll have enough because our audience is ten trillion. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's gonna make up shit. So <laughs> ten trillion viewers. Yes, exactly. Um, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in. Thank you so much for coming. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. 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 Mixing a water over. Love Sorry it. About that. Cheers, Ed Campbell. Cheers. Cheers See you on the next one, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to that episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, I reckon you'll also enjoy Unfiltered, our interview podcast. Here's a little taste of the episode with Gary Lineker. I love my life. I enjoy I enjoy fame. People are lovely. It's so easy to be distracted by the tiny percentage on, on Twitter. In the real world, it's not like that at all. I think I've had only two instances in my entire life where people have had a pop. One old lady elbowed me in my back. <laughs> She was on her way to a Tommy Robinson rally. Really? Yes. Okay, that nice. An old lady, she gave me, whoa, lady car. So like, whoa, whoa. Yeah. And then I had another one where I was going shopping, my groceries, and some bloke shouted out of the road, you hate Britain? You hate Britain, don't you? I'm going, no, I really love Britain. But anyway. That's Unfiltered with Ollie Dugmore, wherever you get your podcast. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.